Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Um, today we've got a great show planned with uh, an interview with Douglas Mallet from NASA, an engineer in support of the Venus Project and the Zeitgeist Movement. Um, I'll get to that in just a moment. Um, I'm going to be trying to step up my efforts here to uh, get... Uh, a lot of really great guests and good shows lined up here. I've also still got plenty of shows listed for the Community Planet book since I was given permission to read that whole book. I um, wanted to comment a little bit and give a little shout-out about Z-Day. Um, I was able to put up an alternative stream for people to watch on my Zeitgeist TV channel with a moderated chat room and, um, you know, the wasn't scrolling a million miles a minute. Um, and uh, we got to get together here in Michigan at a place called the Phoenix Cafe. It was a really cool place. It's like uh, basically a, a nonprofit cafe that is owned by local activists who basically just kind of sit around and hang out. It had like a stage for live music and a projector for showing films and lots of couches. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of like, you know, it had the decor of like, you know, this is like my friend's basement that's been made out really cool to hang out. You know, all it was missing was an Xbox. But <laughs> uh, overall, I really enjoyed Z-Day, and I was glad to go. Uh, there, I took the pictures of the event and put them on my Facebook for V-Radio. Check them out there. Um, and uh, Sean McPherson from the Michigan chapter did a really good job. He's the chapter head for Michigan. Uh, putting that event together, and I'm actually looking forward to it and looking forward to returning to Phoenix Cafe for sure. Another benefit that came out of that was uh, I talked to several of the musicians who put on live music there, and uh, it looks like my Spirit of the Age project, which is basically the project to have a band or a series of bands who all produce independent music for Zeitgeist, is coming together. in addition to that, um, I'm sure some of you have heard about the uh, Zeitgeist Global Radio Station that we're working on that's basically going to be focusing on bands, unsigned bands, to try to get attention to them and try to break the monetary system's hold on creativity and art. So, um, Anyway, um, with all of that together, make sure you visit v-radio.org. I am still collecting donations for my computer because I'm going to have to upgrade it now, not just out of a matter of convenience, but out of necessity because it is showing the signs of slowly dying. Um, I thought about just upgrading it a little bit, but after looking at my motherboard and the things that I need it to support in order to really be able to improve it significantly, it's going to take a, like, I'm just going to have to start over from the ground up because I need a new motherboard, I need a new processor, I need a better video card. Um, I need to be able to hold a lot more RAM, not really because of any vanity, but in so much as just that the technology and the software that I'm using to do um, video broadcasts more specifically on Zeitgeist TV is getting more powerful, and the old hardware I had is not exactly up to snuff. I have a blue chip-in widget on vradio.org for that purpose. Uh, The red one is, once again, already full. The red ones are always for the monthly costs. So we'll see. With any luck, my financial situation will improve sir, you know, right now. But I used to do my um, computer upgrades with my tax returns because now I'm a full-time stay-at-home father and activist. I uh, don't get tax returns. So 
anyway, I want to thank everybody for their support so far. Uh, oh, and one more thing. Um, one of the things I've been finding out at these meetings is that there are people who still do not have computer access who would like to listen to V Radio. So I'm looking into creating CDs of V Radio so that you guys can, you know, buy those and, you know, play them in other players for people. And uh, another thing that I still need feedback from you guys about is if I went ahead and got um, an 800 number for call-ins, would there be more call-ins? Because I'd love to see more call-ins on V Radio. Um, I also obviously offer Skype, so I was kind of hesitant, but you know, I was wondering if, um, if I included an 800 number, uh, which is available to me in like 500-minute blocks for about 25 bucks, if you guys would be interested in using it. So do me a favor and drop me emails if you think that it would affect your you know, willingness to call into the show. So um, without further ado, I'm going to uh, basically have my guest uh, identify himself. Um, so, Douglas, that's your cue. Tell us about right. yourself. Can do. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Douglas. I'm a systems engineer with the Space Shuttle Program. I work with NASA, but I don't work for NASA. I'm one of the subcontractor companies that uh, are all sleep in the same bed anyway in the building where we are. There's NASA, USA, Boeing, and, and my subcontractor company. So that's basically how, how the system's set up. Uh, basically what we do is we do configuration management for the shuttle payload bay that governs all the drawings that show what uh, what the bird's supposed to look like on the inside. Uh, my particular shuttle is OP-105, which is uh, Endeavour, with STS-134 coming up here in the near future. I recently published a book uh, called Turning Point, How Space Exploration and Development Will Determine the Rise or Fall of Humanity. I am a huge space advocate. I've given speeches. I've been on Fox News talking to them about my book. I've been on several radio shows. Um, I, I truly believe that the uh, expansion of humanity into space is the next logical step forward. Um, and, and since humans have a natural passion for exploring anyway, even the, the young child who goes into parts of the kitchen that mom or dad does not want them to go, the child still goes, no matter how many times they're told no. Uh, and so that's just something that's, that's in us uh, from a very young age is to explore and, and look and learn. Um, I wrote the book before I really got into the Zeitgeist movement. And so if anybody were to read the book, you're going to see that I push commercial space a lot. Um, but I figured commercial space is still better than government space. Uh, right now, government space is just this hamstrung political nightmare that gets its budget shifted every year when no true space mission is just one year long. It's multi-year endeavors. And as I always like to say, space exploration does not revolve around political election cycles. Uh, however, with government space, that's exactly what it's turned into. And so I'm pushing for commercial space, the Virgin Galactics, the SpaceX, the the new space movement, uh, but even more than that, I think that the not, not only would humanity benefit significantly by us enacting the Venus Project, of course, uh, on a global scale, but I think it would really turn us into a Star Trekian style of, of culture where space exploration would become much more ready for everyone. Uh, right now it is so hamstrung by costs and budgets that it's almost impossible to do anything major in space. We have the technology, 
but we don't have the fiscal capability. And so that's the point of view that I'm coming from. Now, you know, that's um, actually a question I wanted to ask that I didn't tend to ask all of my guests that are already part of the movement. Um, how did you come across the Zeitgeist Movement and the Venus Project? Tell that story. Sure. Uh, I saw the original Zeitgeist movie when I was still in college. I, I'm, I'm an older person in life, Walt 33. I don't know if you call that old, but anyway, an older person in life, but uh, went to college later than usual. And so um, I, I only graduated in 2007 with my engineering degree. And so I saw the original Zeitgeist while I was in college. And I thought, well, that's pretty interesting, very controversial. Uh, I automatically knew right off the bat people were going to start blowing up and trying to find any and every little tidbit wrong with it. And you can find those, sure. And you can find that in virtually any documentary that's, <laughs> that's made even on the Discovery Channel. So um, I didn't put a lot of stock into that. But, of course, at the time, I didn't really think much of it because that was just the first one. Uh, then Addendum came out, and uh, it took me a little while to get to it, but I saw Addendum about... I want to say six months ago, seven months ago. And uh, that's when, of course, at the end, we shift over to the Venus Project. Now, me being an engineering, space geek, science-minded person, that is what interested me more than anything else. I already knew about the monetary system. I already knew how corporations and politicians were in bed with each other. And none of that was new to me. But seeing somebody like Jacques Fresco have a vision that says, you know, why don't we just redo the whole darn thing? and do it and give it, you know, society 2.0, you know, kind of upgrade it a little bit. Uh, that is what interested me significantly. And that's when I started looking into, uh, you know, what the movement was about on a technical level. How far had they gotten? What were they doing? Um, I am slightly disappointed that we're not really pushing to do anything yet, that Peter Joseph and, and Roxanne are more interested in doing a lot of talking and awareness and stuff than they are building nonprofit organizations to gather a boatload of money so we could start building cities and, like I say, use the system to kill the system, uh, get the money to build self-sustaining systems or cities that, that, or at least research facilities to showcase the technology, the technical aspect, and then use that as a motivation to convert people over to the idea or to convince them of the idea that, hey, you know, uh, we don't really need money to do this. We're technically capable. Well, you know, I think that um, one of the things is the reason why we're, we're spending our time spending awareness is we're hoping to get more people with credentials like yours on board. Because, I mean, if we just had a bunch of, you know, gathered political activists who say we want to go build this thing, but we don't have any engineers, you know, it's nobody's going to invest in that. I mean, we could probably do some kind of donation thing, but um, in comparison to actually get somebody to invest in the idea, they're probably going to want to see that we have a lot more capable people involved. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're waiting is because we want to have people with that expertise. We've got a lot of amateurs, but we have very few professionals like you know, people with your kinds of credentials in design. Although, I mean, to, to shift it a little bit, I would have to say, I mean, um, is there anything that you've seen in Mr. Fresco's proposals, like anything, like, you know, ideas that he had that you as an engineer looked at and went, wow, you know, I could develop that? Uh, yes. Actually, as a matter of fact, I want to – Two part on that one. First part, there's nothing that I see in any of the proposals that can't be done from an engineering and, techn and technological standpoint. Um, there's nothing that he proposes that isn't un that is unrealistic. So that's one part I love is he doesn't go sci-fi with the idea. He uses practical, real technology that exists today and can only be improved upon. And so that's a bonus. That's something I love the most. Then going, is there anything that I could do? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm going to. Uh, 
Um, with or without the Venus Project behind me, I'm probably going to start my own nonprofit organization and build a fully automated hydroponic farm system that will basically facilitate the size of a neighborhood, probably 1,000 to 2,000 people, uh, not a very large facility, but um, build something. And, and if nothing else, if I can't get the Venus Project to allow me to say brought to you by the Venus Project directly as like a, a, a pointed advertisement of sorts, then I'll just say inspired by the Venus Project, which doesn't directly link them. You know how we can play with the English language. It doesn't directly, you know, reflect them as the owners or the or behind the the idea or whatever was produced, but certainly drives people to the idea that that was the inspiration. So let's go check it out. And so right. I'm currently I'm currently uh, talking to uh, some people, a guy in Toronto and in in Australia, who I'm kind of building a technical team right now uh, to look at uh, building these uh, facilities, and I've. And the Houston chapter that I'm in, uh, we're going to spearhead this uh, as our personal project of sorts because I really believe that the way we're going to affect the best change is by local action. Um, we try to do global awareness, but it's local action that's going to matter uh, the most. And um, like they say, all politics is local. I think all activism is local too if you really look at it that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can talk online till the cows come home, but – uh, if people don't start building real things to show off the technology in a real way that affects real people, then it's just a lot of words. And you're not going to convince everybody or a good portion of the population without something tangible for them to interact with. Have you thought about um, getting in contact with Marcin Jakubowski from the open source ecology movement, or are you familiar? I am not familiar at all. Yeah, we should. you should definitely... Well, uh, when this call is over, we need to make sure you do because he's a PhD in physics and he's working on systems like the ones you're talking about. Uh, that's basically all he does. And he developed these things open source, um, you know, these plans for these ideas, you know, these the self-sustaining technologies and um, his plan is to do basically the kinds of things you were talking about. And he basically got into physics because he wanted to develop fusion because he thought that if we got fusion together, there'd be so much less war because there'd be no need for energy, you know, all these energy problems. And then he said that as he was studying, um, he started to realize that for some reason, fusion was always this thing that was always going to be 10 years from now, 10 years from now, 10 years yeah. from now. And mm -hmm. he basically realized at that point that most of his colleagues were really there because they were going to get big fat corporate jobs and none of them were really interested in doing anything that wasn't going to be overly profitable. And so, and things like fusion are something you dangle in front of somebody's head maybe to get some money for grants, but if you ever actually achieved it, then there'd be so much lost revenue in the form of all the engineers and techs who work on the, the, the stupid versions of energy that it was just, it was like ice skating uphill for him. And that's why he, he went ahead and finished his PhD because he wanted to have the credentials. But, you know, he, he realized that working in the corporate sector as a, as a, you know, a scientist who actually cared about the earth was not for him. I'll be sure that uh, you know I get you in touch with him because uh, you and him are a very similar mindset about these sorts of things. I think had him on another one of my shows. Um, great guy. That sounds good. Sounds yeah. good. Open source ecology. You can Google search that. Um, and uh, for those of you who did not listen to that show, um, there is an open source ecology interview that you can listen to on my archives at vradio.org. V-radio.org. You click on the archives button. I can't remember what page it's on, but you know it was a very good interview. 
Um, anyway, uh, that being said, um, I, I, I definitely see merit in where you're going with that. You know, you want to you develop the, the hydroponic farming automated thing would be absolutely great. And um, I think you're also going to find that there are a lot of people in the movement that would like to help you with that project. Um, and I think if, you know, honestly, I mean, if, if you're working on the space shuttle, I mean, how far, I mean, don't you live in Florida or do you go near Florida a lot? Have you ever thought about just visiting Jock and Roxanne? No, I live in Houston, actually, uh, at, at the Johnson Space Center, by the Johnson Space Center. I, okay. I went to college in Florida. Mm-hmm. I, went, I was at the University of Orla, uh, Central Florida in Orlando. Mm-hmm. But um, now I never did get down to, uh, at the time, I didn't know about the Venus Project. It was only after I moved here. Uh, that that I uh, that I knew about that, or else I probably would have taken a road trip. Uh, it's only about an hour and a half to two hour drive from where I used to live. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but no, right now I live in Texas, and if things go the way I'm trying to go, I might even be in Colorado uh, in the near future here. So uh, with the space shuttle program going the way of the dodo, I'm currently in job hunt mode. Yeah, I was <laughs> so. going to ask you about that. I was wondering if, you know, you were going to be able to work on what, I mean, what are they replacing the shuttle with again? I haven't really been able to look into that. Absolutely squat. They're a bunch of idiots. Um, NASA never never really put their nose to the grindstone on doing shuttle 2.0. Uh, they could have, and they didn't. And they were just content with flying the the, show, the original shuttle setup that we had and just finished building the ISS and then phase out the shuttle and bring up the the Constellation program, which I can't stand, because um, it's going the wrong direction. It's putting astronauts back in capsules again like we did during the Apollo era. Yeah, and, that's the first thing I was thinking, like, well, what are they going to do then? Are they going to go back to rockets or something? <laughs> that's exactly what they're doing, yeah. They were going to go back to uh, a solid rocket booster to take up the people and a, a liquid system to take up cargo and do a Lego put-together up in orbit and zip it on off to the moon. Uh, the Lego the Lego put-together part is awesome. That's a step in the right direction, uh, sending up uh, parts, basically components, and then clicking it all together while you're in orbit to make a larger craft that there's no way you could create enough delta v to get it off the ground anyway so um you know that that's a good step but putting people back in capsules and not developing the next the next shuttle system that could fly back is uh, annoying to me that's going the wrong direction they they haven't done a whole lot of advancement in propulsion technology they haven't they've gotten out of their r&d uh core which they just really don't do anymore and the biggest problem i had was they're phasing out the shuttle to bring on board Constellation, which was already over budget and out of whack to begin with, but they had no nothing in the middle. Who, how are we going to fly our people up there in the meantime? You either overlap the two programs so that when one comes up, then the shuttle goes down, but you like minimize the shuttle to maybe two flights a year. You just fly it every once in a while just to replenish uh, the station because it has massive cargo carrying capabilities. It's a very robust spacecraft. But they didn't do that. And and so now we're at the point where that's when commercial space has started to step up and say, okay, well, if you guys aren't going to do it, we'll do it. And we'll do it cheaper. And we'll do it better. And we'll do it faster than you because we're not the government. We don't have 9,000 pounds of red tape to go through. Right. And and all of the political shenanigans that you guys pull on yourselves on a regular basis, you know. Mm-hmm. And so shoot your, they shoot themselves in the foot more often than not. And the commercial space industry can't afford to do that. If they're going to make it a profitable institution, I know 
talking about profit in a V radio show is kind of funny, but <laughs> let's just realize that we're in the world we're in. So if they're going to make uh, profit on it, they have to be perfect all the time because right. it's rockets and spaceships and human lives on the line. And so they can't even afford to have the mistakes that the government had during the Apollo era and the two shuttle disasters. So uh, it's a different set of circumstances. So they're going to be even more anal retentive, but they're also going to be more cost effective. Now, one of the listeners in the chat room has asked, uh, why haven't they done shuttle 2.0 research? What do you think is the, the key factor that's prevented it? What, what are the arguments that they're giving you perhaps? Politicians. That's really what it boils down to. It has to do with the budget more than anything else. NASA's budget is so slim. People think, well, they're, they're doing fine. They get $18 billion a year. And I come back at that with, do you realize we spend over $19 billion a year at Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts combined? <laughs> yeah. we, we, buy, we buy that much in coffee, people. So... If, <laughs> If we can if we can spend that kind of money on coffee in the morning, why the hell can't we spend that kind of money on the space program, which has given us so many of our technological derivatives? I mean, hell, half of the technology that Jacques wants to use in his cities are derivative technologies from the space industry. Mm-hmm. So if it wasn't for the space program, a lot of what we want to do in the Venus Project would still be sci-fi. Right. And people people don't realize that. They don't think about that. They don't realize that the MRI machine and the CAT scan and people want to talk about Velcro and that's funny, but you know, there's a lot of technologies. Uh, photovoltaic paints actually came from the space program because it was an idea to what if you coated the spaceship in it mm-hmm. so that it could generate power, you know, by coating the spaceship in photovoltaic paint. And so a lot of insulated paints that go in the houses to make your houses better insulated so you save on energy costs. I mean, you, you, there's a whole list. And NASA has a book that they come out with every year called Spinoff. Mm-hmm. And Spinoff book it goes into details about every year the different projects that NASA either directly did or worked with private industry to improve upon or, or do a design on something. So, um, But the reason why that two, Shuttle 2.0 was never done is because the government has been undercutting NASA's capabilities for a very long time in the financial department. And so to really do what they should be doing for Shuttle 2.0 and, and maybe even building a moon base and all that, they should be getting around 25 to $30 billion a year, which is still chump change when you look at the entire budget. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't. They get their 18%. They barely get an increase every year to cover inflation, and they're asked to do more with less. It's ridiculous. Right. Yeah, more with less is a very common problem, and it's it's one of the things that results in all of this. I mean, I, I hazard to say, I mean, it's like, you know, some people would always ask, you know, like, do you think that any of the shuttle disasters might have in any way been linked to the monetary system? Was there any kind of planned obsolescence? Was there any like outcry of we need more funds for certain things that wasn't adjusted in some way or another? Um, if commenting on that would be bad, I don't you don't have to. But no, no, I can no. Well, I mean the the challenger was bad management. That had nothing to do with uh, cost cutting or any of that stuff. Um, it was too cold to launch challenger. The the O rings and the specs, the technical specs that the engineers design for the for the o-rings of the solid rocket boosters have tolerance limits and if anybody knows anything about science engineering and technology 
When you design something, you give it a plus or minus tolerance factor on various conditions that it's supposed to operate in. And it was too cold to launch. But because they were launching a teacher and the politicians wanted to look good, because I think if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong, but I think it was an election year or pulling up on close to an election cycle. Um, but if it's not, then it's still just politicians being politicians, you know, selfish douchebags. And, and basically, they were pressuring management to launch that damn shuttle. And it was too cold. And so what happened? It launched. It, the O-ring gave out because it was not within its tolerance limits. It sparked over, and next thing you know, you've got a big fireball. So that had nothing to do with cost. I mean, the shuttle the, has been running perfectly fine ever since then. Um, you look at Columbia. That had nothing to do with, again, the shuttle itself. That had to do with foam. Um, the weird thing is foam had been falling off and hitting the shuttle for years before that. It's always happened. It had always happened. But it had never happened like that, you know, to where such a large chunk came off at once and hit a very sensitive part of the wing, you know, the leading edge, uh, CC, carbon-carbon uh, reinforced leading edge of the wing. And so that's one of those what I call a one-off anomaly. I mean, what are the odds of that happening to begin with? And then what are the odds of that ever happening again? I mean, it's it's one of those nay-freak occurrences. Now, unfortunately, when NASA has a nay-freak occurrence, it's international news. And so, you know, it, it's it's unfortunate and it sucks and we lost astronauts and we lost a good shuttle and, and all that. But again, that really had not a whole lot to do with costs. It just had to do with, you know, a nay-freak occurrence that caused it, that caused the disaster. Right. I see where you're coming from there. I guess, you know, like you kind of pointed out earlier, people's lives in the line, it's a lot harder to get away with something <clears throat> like playing obsolescence in the space program when the entire world is watching everything you do. You exactly. Know, you know, That's not, something you, know, you don't play with. <laughs> yeah, you don't want, I mean, because you can, you can skirt plan obsolescence by, you know, but when you're actually, I think, you know, mind you, that part of the part part of the reason for that though is that you know the the space program is run by people, you know, scientists who really actually care, you know, have a certain passion. You know, it's like, I know that Jacques Fresco pointed out that when you know, like, when people ask, you know, well, what will motivate people? He's like, well, what about the stars? You know, after we're in a Venus Project society, you know, it's just like in the Federation of Planets in Star Trek. You know, that's what motivated people. They don't get paid. Yeah, it's it's motivation makes me laugh when people bring that up. They say, well, what will people do? I said, well, first of all, what do you do now? I mean, do you really contribute to the technological advancement of the human species? Most people don't. Right. You you use all of the cool little toys, gadgets, and whistles that people like me and others, you know, invent or contribute to the to the development of, but you yourself really don't. What do you work in the service industry? Do you play with money all day? Do you actually produce or create anything of solid work? Most people don't. And so they're already mooching off the, off of the intellect of others to begin with. So the so all the all the Venus project or all the future that we want would give them is more free time to hang out with friends and play video games and be with the family and enjoy time with the kids and travel and everything else, you know. How about relax. I always ask people, do you, do you actually have an aversion to relaxation and entertainment? You know, are, are you yes. so are you so programmed that you absolutely must slave 40 to 60 hours a week just to maintain a basic semblance of life? Wouldn't it be nice to work maybe 10 
a week or maybe rotate one week a year as a volunteer task force that, for example, I, I, maybe you can use this or not. I don't care if you like the, uh, the story. But, you know, say you've got this hydroponic facility that I'm talking about, but now it's like a 10-story building, and it, and it facilitates like half the city. It's just this big complex, but it's only one building, a small footprint, but it's 10 stories tall. And it's all automated and robotic, and much like today, how cars can call the dealership when they're about ready to need service or something is out of specs. The car actually calls them, the computer on board. Uh, the BMWs and the Mercedes can do that now, or, or they can call the, uh, the driver on their cell phone and tell them, hey, my oil's low or something like that. Well, the same thing, the building would be programmed to do the same thing. And so say you had a, a team of 50 people uh, every week or 10, whatever, it doesn't matter, say 10 people, a team, uh, if you have like 300 and some odd technicians, you can rotate teams of 6 to 10 once a week. And so basically you would be on call for that week. And if the building called you, then that team would go in and fix whatever needed to be fixed. But you're only on call for that one week. And then after that, you're off for the next 51 because then it rotates to the next team that's on call for that week. And the teams would know when their week is. They'd be kind of like a schedule. So just make sure you're living back in the city during this week and this week, you know, and, and then after that, you're free to go do whatever the hell you want. And so that's basically – that's a very simple way of putting how life could be uh, in, in the city like that, where there'd just be teams and pockets of people that would be on rotational schedules. And uh, so I see that as a, as a significant bonus to how the system would work. Well, you know, and that's another thing actually that I, it came up actually last night at my Z Day, you know, in Michigan was that, you know, they uh, one of the things my brother talked about was like the maintenance cost would be so enormous, and I'm like that's because you're still thinking in the precedent of the way that engineers do things in a monetary system, where they're actually told, well, we don't want you to build this too good because if you do, um, well, then we're not going to make any money fixing it. And the first thing that came to mind was the radio show that I had with the gentleman who um, was, you know, in the electric car business. And he still has the same electric car that he's had for the last seven years and has never had to do anything except to replace tires. You know, that's like a yeah. textbook example of, you know, you're, you're still thinking in an, an old paradigm where people are actually, you know, like the reason you're projecting that there's going to be all these maintenance costs is because you're thinking of the way that idiots do things because they want to make money more than they want to make a good product. Yeah, and we don't make it we don't make things out of the best possible materials possible. You know, and that's that's or we don't use magnetic, you know, uh, bearings and stuff so that the parts never touch or you know things of that nature where you reduce all of your seizing issues and your thermal issues and all the conditions that, you know, if you were to build this car or this device what is the best possible stuff you could ever make it out of so that it lasts absolutely the longest, including the least amount of moving parts and the highest technical systems and stuff like that? Well, we don't do that because if right. we did that, that object would cost a fortune in today's right. setup. But in the Venus Project setup, you would be encouraged to do that so that people don't have to screw with it all the time <laughs> so that yeah. it doesn't break. And I saw somebody in the chat room because I do have the chat room up, but I, I don't miss it. I don't see everything that everybody says, but – Somebody was saying you'd be out of practice with 51 weeks off. Uh, I don't – I wouldn't because I, I'd still be training and learning on my own to know how to make the system better or keep up on it or, or whatever the case may be. Or even the volunteers could maybe come in two weeks before their, their due date 
to, to be on call and kind of brush up on everything for whatever the case may be. And so it, it, there's a certain semblance of logic that a technical-minded person would put into there. I mean, it's not, it's not the same. People, you know, I, I, draw, I draw up the story that, you know, about a million people total over the last thousand years have contributed to the – or 2,000 years – have contributed to the growth of the human species. Everybody else has just been along for the ride. Right. And those million people or so that have developed all this science, engineering, and technology did it because they loved it. They had just this perverse, natural passion for science, engineering, and technology geek stuff. And I happen to be one of them. And there's plenty of us out there. So the entire planet doesn't need to be sci-techy. But as long as there's a good good percentage of us that are, and there's plenty of us, and I think there would be even more because I can just imagine how much brain power is wasted in the poor nations of the world where kids are starving to death. For all we know, that kid could be the one that develops the gravity drive generator to take our spaceships to the next level. But that kid never had a chance. From the right. moment he was born until he died, he never had a chance to bring that brain to the level to, to accomplish that. Well, if we have, live in the Venus Project world, every single child that's ever born has the opportunity to grow that mental capability, so we're actually going to have more scientists and engineers to choose from, I think, than we do now. That's absolutely right, and I, we talk about that all the time. Because it's like Actually, I, it occurred to me to make this point earlier when we were talking about what really motivates people and I was telling you before we got onto the show that I, you know, I at one time wanted to be an astronaut, and um, another one of my big science passions that my teachers were really disappointed that I never got into as much as I really wanted to was robotics. Um, I love robots. I always have had a fascination with robots. If I wasn't building robots for the Venus Project and the Venus Project Society, I'd be building them at home because I myself am interested in robotics and building robots. And the, the fact is, is that I think, you know, one of the things that immediately popped into my head when we were talking about the education, educational differences you know, is that I, one of the reasons I lost interest in it is it always seems so far away. You know, if there had been more, like, you know, we could get rid of some of these BS classes, you know, like history. <laughs> I'm being silly, but, you know, and replace them with, like, if I could have had a robotics class in high school, there's no way I would have left high school. I would have, I would have braved the terrible ghetto that I lived in because, like, I basically got out of high school because I lived in a very, 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 very bad neighborhood shooting right. and things like that. And I, I would have kept going anyway. I wouldn't have cared. I mean, I, and they're starting to get rid of some of those classes, like auto shop, you know, going the way of the dinosaur. They're getting rid of a lot of shop classes, and they're doing this, this, like, this generic class that doesn't really teach you anything and just sort of talks about stuff. And then, then there's the book lo- learning thing. Not everybody's interested in that. I don't want to read about robots. I want to go build a robot. You know, if they had given me the ability to do that when I was a kid, I would have totally – I would have loved school, and instead I loathed school. And the reason I loathed it was I was just being made to memorize things on sheets of paper. I wasn't doing anything. And, you know, I think that, you know, if you, I I remember this because like I'm waiting for my children to get a little older because I'm still obsessed with robots. And once my, you know, daughter and son are a little older, I'm going to get Capsella, which is like one of my favorite toys from when I was a kid. You know, these little motorized toys, you can build Mm -hmm. little stuff with it. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Like one of my other favorite toy sets when I was a kid was called Robotics. And it was just building your own little robots with, like, you know, these various parts and motors, and you had a control panel that would let you do stuff with it. And, you know, that sort of stuff was all very fascinating to me when I was a kid. And when you talk about motivation, you kind of get the motivation beaten out of you. You know, the, the uh, 
the realism, you know, supposedly the monetary system sets in and you're like, well, I'd really like to do this, but um, I really can't because I have to make money right now, you know, right. things like that. And it's, it basically, you know, it's, it, it has killed so many people. Like they talk about the monetary system is what gives you incentive. And I remember how many is like, you know, or, and, or freedom, even worse, freedom to be whatever you want to be. is such a farce. Like, you know, I have a friend of mine, you know, she wanted to be a nurse. She can't be because she can't afford to go to school for it. I have, my wife wanted to be a veterinarian. You know, she would still like to be a veterinarian. You know why she's not a veterinarian? She can't afford to be a veterinarian. You know, right. and that's what—that's not incentive. You know, that, that's, you're you're only as free as what you can afford. Yes, and that. I you know I, I could get rich. I could be you know, part of a Fortune 500 company. Everybody can. No, the system would even function if everybody succeeded. Because right. then there would be nobody to do the blue collar jobs. This is why it's such a BS thing. It's like, you know, and mind you, they're, re they're removing us as fast as they can, you mm -hmm. know, with automation. But, you know, they're not doing it because they give a damn about us. They're doing it because they give a damn about them. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I, I look at that and I, I realize a lot of the toys that we give our kids are just crap. You know, we don't really do things to cultivate, you know, how, you know, they're thinking. You know, I remember the space program used to be a big deal when I was a kid, and now they barely talk about it. And I think that some of it is that that, that politics you were talking about. Like, you know, JFK made this huge deal about going to the moon, and it made him a hero as a president. I remember Bush, when he was trying to save his presidency at one point, started hinting, well, what, well you know, hey, you know, if you keep me in office, maybe we'll go to Mars. I don't know if you remember that. but Yeah, yeah, <laughs> when he set up his vision for space exploration, that was the start of the Constellation fiasco. Right. And I guess, you know, it's just but, these politicians do this stuff just because they, they want to appeal to people's dreams, but they don't really care about it. Well, no, it's like I'll get Kennedy is the perfect example of a schmuck who didn't give a damn about space. He just wanted to beat the Russians. It was all right. a Cold War beat the Russians thing. He's even quoted saying, I don't care much about space, but he knew that. Getting the nation behind the idea of going to the moon and then giving NASA a crapload of money to do it, which they had up to 4% of the national budget at the time. Uh, now NASA has 0.1% of the national budget. And so, I mean, I could just imagine if NASA still had 3 to 4% now, they, we probably would have a moon base and giant space stations and have been on Mars. But the motivations for why we did what we did weren't altruistic. There wasn't the politicians don't give a crap about that. He just wanted to beat the Russians and look good, and he did, and it was great. And rah 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 USA and all that stuff. But uh, what do we do on the moon? We planted a flag, drove a go kart, hit a golf ball, and brought home some rocks. What we effing do? I mean, we didn't really do anything on the moon. I want I, and there were plans to build the moon base and. And all that, but then lo and behold, here comes Vietnam, and that pretty much, you know, good old-fashioned war will screw up any good idea. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, if you could have figured out a way to effectively kill gorillas in the Vietnam, you know, jungles, they would have helped you get to the moon. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, it's just this this sick scenario if you go through history, and that's why when I made the awakening video, I like going through the history setup and and kind of showing some of the correlations of why things were what they were, and, and that we're going right through the same cycles again. It's no different, except only now we've got a war that could go on forever. You know, ooh, war against terror, that's fine. That could effing go on forever. 
But sorry, I get passionate about that. I just don't want to cuss. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, hey, I understand. Like I said to you before we got on here, that every now and then, especially the the military industrial complex, will get me foaming at the mouth. So um, I, I get it, um, and I admire the passion. It's it's interesting, actually. It's it's refreshing to talk to people who actually, you know, get angry about things that actually matter. Um, and here's here's the part that'll make you even more more like wow is I was in the Navy I served my country you know I I worked with uh, anti-submarine aircraft when uh when I was from you know 18 to 18 to 22 years old and so I I did my time my dad served in the Navy I come from a military background and I believe the military does a lot of good stuff but the politicians that pull the strings to put those boys and girls into action those guys have no freaking clue what they're doing. Oh yeah, and I, I don't I don't blame the military either. I have friends who are in the military now who support the Zeitgeist movement. That's one of the reasons why when Peter did his recent thing about on that radio show when he said the military is just serial killers, I kind of cringed because it's, not everybody who's involved with the military doesn't realize that there's bad stuff going on. Yeah, in, and in, I think Peter's a little sensationalist when he says crap like that, and it kind of aggravates me. They're not serial killers. I mean, yeah, they are broken down and trained to be killing machines in a way, but Ninety percent of the people in the military would much rather not be fighting somewhere. They'd much mm-hmm. rather be home with their families, you know, and maybe protecting the nation on a local level. But they sure as hell don't want to be out. I've got plenty of friends in the military, probably like you, like you just said, and they don't want to be there. They don't want to be doing that crap. They freaking hate it over there, and yeah. they don't see a lot of the point. But guess what? You're in the military. You've got orders to follow, and some other schmuck is pulling the strings to make you go in there and risk your life and there's nothing they can do about it because they're they're under the UCMJ and you know they're not even under the constitution that's the uniform code of military justice if no one knows what that is and so you can't tell your boss to piss off which is the reason why I got out of the military that that's why I got out yeah I started dealing with officers and chiefs and 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 stuff in the navy that were just stupid and pissing me off and I'm like, wow, am I smarter than you people? And I can't tell you you're an idiot. And that's why I was like, at least in the civilian world, I can tell somebody to screw off. And if they fire me, that's fine. I'll go get another job. But if you do that in the military, you go to jail. <laughs> right. You know, I remember that actually. I was thinking about that for the longest time. You know, you always get this. If I made a country, what would it be like? And one of the first things that came to mind, because I have a lot of Vietnam veteran friends, and they always tell me about how incompetent most of the officers were over there. And it just it seems so silly to me that you would tell you know that this kid that who just happened to go to college that he gets to go into the field and lead seasoned veterans who are like you know are your non-commissioned officers and that never made any sense to me you know I can see where you'd need to if you, you know if your education was relevant that would be different but I don't I don't see you know a lieutenant with his accounting degree or whatever you know showing up you know in the middle of the bush. And telling seasoned sergeants who've been, you know, you know, at that point in two tours in Nam, telling you what to do doesn't make any sense at all. You I know. completely agree. Yeah, the only officers I have almost any respect for are the ones that come out of the military academies because right. they're at the military academies from the time they get there all the way through. They're taught how to lead and respect and and do what they're supposed to do. Although a good percentage of them also come out with a little chip on their shoulder and some arrogance because they went to the academy. So right. you get that kind of nonsense, too. Now, when it comes to – I would also point out is my, my dislike for the military-industrial complex does not, in my opinion, anyway, does not turn me into a, a soldier hater. It's never been that. It actually – it's the stuff that they don't do for the troops that makes me infuriated, like the, the whole issue about the lack of body armor. 
or the the BS about you know how they made the Humvees, you know. Mm-hmm. I and the way I've been thinking about that in the long run, I'm like, you know, that that Humvee situation is beginning to sound like a planned obsolescence situation to me. They want these things to get destroyed because they make so much money making them. And I'm like, man, that's disgusting. And I got so angry when I realized that because I watched a lot of documentaries about Iraq and Afghanistan. I remember there's this one there's this one quote where it was in No End in Sight, really great documentary about Iraq. And one of the soldiers, you know, they get, they are doing a Q and A with Donald Rumsfeld, and one of the soldiers is like, "So, um, why are we scrounging for money for, you know, body armor and for armor for our Humvees?" You know, and Rumsfeld starts to like turn red, and the whole crowd starts cheering for him. You know, the soldiers know that there's something up. Mm-hmm. And I usually tell people, especially, we cannot get back to another idiotic scenario like we were with some of the Vietnam veterans that we're spitting on and calling baby silio killers and all that. And there, if I ever see that, there's going to be a problem. But the point is, is that activism, we have to remember something. That this, this is an age in, in which, you know, I had a couple of friends of mine who were also like alternative radio hosts like this. They're called the Fire Team for Freedom. And they think really the only hope that America has in the event of such a collapse, like to fascism, is that the military is going to look at the, you know, the, pen, you know, the pencil pushers and go, you know, I think I swore an oath that said something about protecting the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I think it's time that you get the hell out of here. It's going to come down to that. It's not going to come down to people with their 12 gauges and their 30-06s thinking they're going to mount an armed resistance against the military. You know, and I, the, the, the scary stuff is, is the stuff that they're willing to show you on the military channel is like, obviously, that's just what they're willing to show you. The mm-hmm. technology differences between the average citizen defending themselves you know, and the military now is so ridiculously huge that the whole notion of, okay, great, I'm glad you've got your shotgun and your 36 hunting rifle, but, you know, they're going to drop a bomb on your house and not blow up any buildings around it. You know, it's it's not the same world anymore. Exactly. Something people need to to keep in mind, though, is is if the military served, I guess, or – at least currently in the system we have, serves a very important person, purpose of protecting our butts. And, you know, there are bad people out there. Now, people can talk about the system and, and why are people mad at us and all that all they want, and we can go into debates on that until the cows come home. But there should always be massive amounts of respect for the people that serve this country. I still have that. I still want to change the system. I still want to move towards that peaceful world. Uh, I think the Venus Project and the resource, you know, and abundance and, and using the proper management of the Earth's resources and, and creating these cities and all of the technology helps us get to that point. But I will never, ever, ever, ever bash the men and women in uniform. The goal is to try to make it so that we don't need them anymore. Or at least exactly. Like, you know, or, or don't have them. That's, you know, if I was on that show that Peter was on, because I know how to talk to some of those people, I would have, I would have, I would have taken it into a different route, which is I would have said – well, you realize that the military is generally just made to be a tool for corporations and, you know, acquisition of other people's resources by force, right? You know, and they were like, well, what do you know about it? I'd be like, well, um, there's a little book called War is a Racket written by General Smedley D. Butler, uh, Marine Corps, Congressional Medal of Honor recipient, and he'll sit there and tell you about it, how it was before World War II. And if you sit and read that book, because I, I did a show about that. We read the book in two different ah. shows. And he, everything he's describing, I'm like, well, there's Halliburton, you know, there's KBR, uh, look, there's, there's McDonnell Douglas, you know, it's not the same companies, but they were doing all the same things, uh-huh. you know, all the same kind of crap to make money, 
you know, and then he went on to talk about the various campaigns that he was deployed on supposedly to protect American democracy, whatever, that were really just, you know, him going to places to make American corporations safer, uh, corporations like United Fruit. You know, the fact that we there's so much blood on our fruit when you think about it, the land rights that we had to get. You know, and anytime anybody got the notion that maybe we ought to take our land rights back from the, you know, from the United States, well, it's time to create a new excuse to take the military out there. And General, General Butler went off, you know, and he was really good at systematically telling the story. Um, I highly recommend that show. You can also get that in my archives, uh, War is a Racket. We did two different shows about it and discussed it. And it's, it, I think that they would, have, they would have identified with that because even mm-hmm. the, the libertarians who are in the military recognize that we're not going to war for any purposes that really have anything to do with national security. You know, right. I mean, it's, we, if, even if you're not a 9-11 truther, there was no reason to be in Iraq. And towards the end, the neoconservatives, you know, George Bush and all that, admitted that there was no reason to be over there. You know, at least they didn't say it in those words, of course, but, you know, they said, well, what did Iraq have to do with 9-11? Nothing. You know, it's a great video that you can watch on YouTube. You can search it. It's called How to Create an Angry American, and it takes all the various quotes of things that they said in their own words and how they contradicted themselves as that war happened. You want to focus on the issue that, okay, so you love your military. So do I. I support the troops. Senator Mike Gravel was a friend of mine. I worked for him in his campaign, and his attitude was, yeah, I support the troops. That's why I want them home. Yes. Get them the hell home. Get them out of the corporate hands. Absolutely. They don't need to be over there fighting for that. You know, it's like let's go blow up stuff so that we can also send in our, you know, our no bid contractors to rebuild it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's all money making crap. You know, and I just, I guess that's the one thing. You know, I, I understand where you know Jacques coming from is that I, I, you know, he's worried about that military expansionist attitude finding its way into space. And I do think that we can we can we can avoid that, you know, because like as we pointed out before we got on the call, that you know the the rate at which things are growing, you know, we're not really in a, you know even anywhere near to the point where we're going to be showing up on any planet with any poor blue people like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the Navi, yeah, exactly. And, we're going to be exploiting, but and not only that, with with commercial space getting into the game, the new space industry that changes the dynamic significantly, uh, you know. Virgin Galactic and SpaceX and X-Core and, and Armadillo Aerospace and all the new space companies aren't taking up military assets. They're you know working with Bigelow to build space hotels mm-hmm. and doing things of that nature. That, that changes the dynamic of how space looks because for the most part, space has always been a military institution. Spy satellites and, and even our space shuttles running DOD missions before the Challenger accident and things of that nature, things that nobody even knows what they took up when they right. went up there. And so, you know, it people think, well, don't militarize space. It's already been militarized. And then what we need to do is is what we're doing now is commercialize it and get commercial entities up there and building space stations and tra- and sending average everyday people back and forth. I mean, granted, it's $200,000 a ticket to start, but you know, even the first airplane rides were expensive as hell for the time. Right. You know, and so you've got to look at inflation and, and, and what you're trying to accomplish. So um, historically, it's, it's basically that kind of setup. But I think the monetary system is going to break down long before space becomes this robust platform. Right. No, and I, and I agree with you there. It's funny, actually, as one of my listeners pointed out, it, it, something rather ironic just happened is that I didn't know you were the filmmaker behind Awakening, um, and I was planning on asking the filmmaker of Awakening to come on my show. (laughs) (laughs) 
You didn't know that? No, I didn't know. I didn't put two and two together on that. That's really ironic. Um, it's like if I had known that, I would have get, I would have scheduled a two-hour segment from the beginning because I would have talked to you about what we're talking about now, and then I would have talked to you about Awakening. Um, but yeah, that was a really good film, and I, I think that um, I, I actually had used that film to talk to my brother, you know, and was because it really had the hard statistical data. Mm-hmm. that a lot of our other films about Venus Project ideals have not had. Um, and I, I think that um, that was a really, really good film um, for those for those people. And I, I, I give that one to capitalists because I want them to look at it and, okay, so now please explain to me then how we continue your, your system. Right, and exactly. And, and, and I tried when I did it. My goal was 30 minutes, and I went to 32, so that's not too bad. Um, and so because, you know, God bless Peter. His stuff is too damn long. You know, it's just these two-hour, long-winded, monotone-style, you know, documentaries. I was like, man, ADD today in this country, that might work to help convince some European people who have a little more free time or whatever. I don't know. But not in this country. That's going to be difficult to get them to hold on that long. So what if I make something that's 30 minutes, hard-hitting, fast, punches them in the face, and then forces them to go further research on their own. Right. Well, that's, you know, I, and I've talked to Peter about that and he agrees because we have run into a lot of people, the, 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 the American idol generation who doesn't want to sit down and sit down, you know, for two hours. And, you know, part of the reason for that though, is, and we find this out a lot when we're talking about the Venus project is that like, you know, for example, if you ever listen to Jock speak, he doesn't always directly answer your question. He'll go off on what you believe to be a tangent and yeah. after he finally gets around to answering you, though, you're like, well, you know, if he hadn't said all of that other stuff, <laughs> I would be asking that question next. He, you realize he got into a habit of explaining things. It's like, when you want to explain the Venus Project, you send out a boomerang, and the boomerang hits all of the relevant points, and then it comes back to your question. You know, and so I, and I realized that because I started doing it myself, you know, as a spokesman for the Venus Project, when I'm trying to explain stuff to people, I end up going off on all these things, because you find... The money, the money system is at the root of so many of our problems, and it's just it's saturated throughout all of mankind's problems that you can't end up talking about one aspect of it without talking about all the other related aspects, you know, right. that are just as powerful, just as relevant, you know. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, and I, I find myself, of course, being, you know, like the kid in me awakening again and wanting to ask you questions. It's like, you know, like, because I had always wondered what kind of modifications could we have done to the space shuttle to get it to the moon? Or was that ever a possibility? Uh, no, it's got too much mass. It's too massive. You'd have to put uh, four extra sets of boosters or maybe uh, create an Ortega system with, never mind, I'm not going to get into what that is. You know, what the hell's an Ortega system? But mm-hmm. anyway, uh, basically, no, it's too big. It's too massive. Uh, what you need to do is send up parts and segments, get them in the orbit, build them up in orbit to a larger craft. Like like I said, Lego piece them together Uh, because the Earth's gravity well is a bitch, and that's basically it. When it comes to space and astrodynamics and getting anything off of this rock, the gravity well is a pain in the behind. And so the greater mass that you're trying to get up, the much more difficult it is to, uh, to even break the atmosphere, much less get it into orbit and then give it the additional delta V or the, del- the, the additional boost necessary to get it where you want to go. Um, so until we develop gravity drives and ways to actually modify and or beat gravity, which I have ideas on that, but I've got to have, I've got to research that. Uh, I need research grants to do things with that. Mm-hmm. But if, if you were to 
finally get to that level, then all bets are off and you can do whatever you want. But since we still use the caveman approach, which is basically lighting a firecracker and hoping it stays stable all the way up to the top of the ride, then you need to do it in smaller pieces and then build the system up there and then have refuel depots that are in orbit already that are preloaded with fuel. So you basically just launch nothing but an oxygen and nothing but a hydrogen tank on two separate flights. And if they crash or explode, so what? It's no people. It's just robotic. Um, but they would reload the fuel depot or load the fuel depot. And then when you get up there and, and you know, construct your craft, it docks, completely reloads with fuel. So now you're already out of the gravity well. You're cruising around about 18,000 miles an hour. You've reloaded the fuel. Now you can kick your engines in full speed and get to your destination a hell of a lot easier with a larger craft. But there's no way to do that large craft from the ground up. You have to right. kind of put it together while you're up there. I guess, like, you know, when you look into the, the, the science fiction of, like, Battlestar Galactica and stuff like that, we're, we're probably we're really going to have to look into other ways before we could ever think of something like, say, the size of an aircraft carrier in space. Um, uh, the only way to do that, or the only way to start getting to that kind of level is to do construction in orbit, mm -hmm. where you actually build the whole thing in orbit. For example, uh, using the moon and extracting the moon's resources or going to an asteroid, bringing, bringing the asteroid to a Lagrangian point or to lunar orbit and mining it and getting all the facility, or all, the, all, the, um, all the minerals and everything that you need, taking it down to the lunar surface and manufacturing what you need to on the lunar surface. And then it's a lot easier to get off the moon than it is to get off the Earth. So that right. allows you to build much larger craft, much larger structures. That's how you would start to get aircraft carrier-sized spacecraft in orbit to, to go around. And, they can be, and since there's no drag, it doesn't really matter what the hell the thing kind of looks like because there's no atmosphere to go up against. So that doesn't matter. The only thing you have to worry about is radiation, differential, and, and solar pressure affecting your craft because of surface area. But mm -hmm. that's something you can shield against with, mag uh, with electromagnets and stuff like that. So... Um, that's how you would build such large craft is by using the moon and asteroids. We have the capabilities to do that now, but we don't have the money to do that now, which is why I love the Venus Project. If we can get this puppy rolling, I, I'll be standing up like freaking Moses on the hill. All right, time to go build some space shit. Sorry. No, I get it. And that's, you know, it's actually, you pointed that out is that you're so excited about it. It's like, inventiveness is its own motivator. You know, they think that capitalism is what brought all these inventions, but capitalism only invents things that make money. You know, well, not only that, but... And it certainly doesn't make, you know, invent things that don't make money. We're getting ready to go to the end of the live broadcast. We will still have time on the... Um, if you're willing to stick around a little longer, we can also continue to go into the archive. Okay. Um, there's a couple more things I wanted to bring up. But yeah, it's... Um, thank you, everybody who's listening live. Um, the show will be available on archive afterwards um, for whatever Douglas and I are talking about here. Um, thank you for tuning in. Please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org, um, for the archive of this show. Um, and also, uh, his book is available. It's linked to this show itself. Um, you can click on that there if you want to buy a copy of his book. Um, and uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and continue talking. The show will cut off in about 60 seconds regardless. 
Um, All right. I do yeah. prefer people to go to Lulu.com because Amazon actually fleeces the bejesus out of me on, on the amount of revenue I can get. And I okay. use that money to try to do guest speaking around the country. Um, oh, yeah. So, okay, well, yeah, Lulu.com is a great site. And if you want to yeah. write books, that's where I'd go to. So, but, you know, but that being said, um, you know, it's, uh, when we talk about uh, Mars, um, I mean, how difficult was that? It, it, or is that really going to be? I mean, and they keep talking about it. Do you think it's? I mean, how, I mean, could it be done like right now? What what going to Mars? Yes. Oh yeah, we can do that. We could have done that 20 years ago. Wow. Like, you know, you're saying like you know back like before the shuttle, or is that? I mean, I'm so old. I always forget how old the shuttle is. Well, the shuttle's 30. The shuttle right. came around in 80, and so about 10 to 15 years after that, we, we could have gone to Mars. Mm-hmm. Mars is not really that difficult. It's difficult, but it's not that difficult. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, that's – that's uh, I'm not worried about Mars. There's, I mean, uh, Zubrin, Dr. Zubrin has uh, written several books on it, uh, Ways to Go to Mars. Um, I think uh, – <sighs> I think that if you set up the fuel depot system and also also set up a fuel depot system around Mars, that you could have nice two-way traffic on a regular basis. Uh, but there is the notion that the first people to go to Mars will be going one way, and right. uh, and they'll and there's guarantee you you'll find plenty of people that'll do it. It, it. You will have no shortage of people that would love to go to Mars and just stay there and right. be the one to pioneer. The, the the settlements the the whole, the whole wild west mentality but going to mars and mm-hmm. you know people back then did it when it was dangerous as hell and people right now would do it um and even though it's dangerous as hell and they they'd still do it and knowing it's a one way trip but they'd be the ones who basically would land and then you just start sending a whole bunch of stuff and it would they'd go and get it and when it lands go and get it bring it back and build up the build up the base Right. And they'd spend their entire lives doing that. And you'd send more people and more people and, you know, start getting uh, enough men and women together so you can start, you know, breeding and, and you know, building up the population naturally as well as shipping people over. Um, of course, that would be interesting to deal with. The kids would, coming back to Earth, they would have a hard time, if, right. if, not, if not almost impossible, because of one-third versus one gene. Right, different of gravity. Yeah, differences of gravity, so their bone mass would be completely different. In fact, they almost you'd end up starting to get a different kind of human. You you you'd start seeing different, you know, characteristics and uh, kind of a evolutionary split. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, I think you'd see different. Now, if we could come up with ways to, like I said, do artificial gravity in some kind of way, maybe they can go into a chamber every day that is one G. Or their houses could be 1G, but running around the planet would be a third G. So that way, at least they can come back home because their bodies are relatively used to it. But once again, that, that requires manipulating gravity, and people still don't know what that's made out of. You know, that's, I, I remember that, actually. And, like, you see, like, in all the old sci-fi films with uh, the uh, space stations where you'd have this, this spinning tube space station so that it would apparently – that was their theory on how to create artificial gravity – it, it, is that concept solid? I mean, it, could that be could that be done? Oh yeah. Or? Oh yeah. That's it's a centri- it's a centrifuge. It's a very large centrifuge. So you just you do the math calculation to say if you want one to two RPMs, it needs to be this big, and that'll give you one G. And uh, and yeah, you're uh, thinking of two thousand and one. 
Uh, oh yeah, not just 2001, but yeah, there's a there was it seemed like almost every sci-fi film from the 70s yeah. had some yeah. brown space station in it. <laughs> yeah, it's the most. It's basically the the rotating donut. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. the it's the most logical until we quite literally develop artificial gravity. It's the next best thing. Uh, you just have to the, the the kicker is scale. You can't have something small going really fast like a merry-go-round or the Gravitron. I don't know if you've ever been on the Gravitron mm-hmm. at those stupid little fairs that come by town right. that kind of stick you to the wall. But the equilibrium in your inner ear is very sensitive. Your inner ear is very sensitive. And if it's too small and going too fast, you'll get nauseous and all screwed up. So you might still be feeling 1G, but you're going too quick. And so right. your body knows, he's like, yeah, we're at 1G, but we're spinning out of control here. And so then you get disequilibrium in your body. But if you make it the proper size to where it's only about two, two and a half revolutions per minute or so, uh, then your body is cool with that. It's, it's a little more realistic. They've done uh, biomechanical studies or bio studies on that. Mm-hmm. And so, but the problem is it has to be kind of large to pull that off. So you need a lot of, you need a lot of material and resources up there. That's not something you can send in one shot. That, again, that's one of those put together like Legos uh, things where you send up the pieces and, and construct it in orbit and then get it spinning. Right. Now, you know, I mean, I guess uh, one of the things that Jacques talks about that, you know, that how it, over the course of time, you know, there are a lot of things that are looked at and you're like, we'll never do that in a million years or whatever. And I was curious, if, is there anything over the course of your career that at one point was thought we will never do this and then you were able to see it happen? Uh, let me think. No, I mean, you say the course of my career, but I've really only been in the space. I've been a space geek all my life, but I've only been professionally in the space industry for a little over two years. Oh, um, so my inside connections aren't as robust as, you know, like I said, I only graduated college in 07. Uh, but I've done a lot of self-study in astrophysics and, and uh, all of the sciences related to space engineering technologies and things of that nature. So going through college wasn't really that difficult for me. Well, you know, uh, I remember it's, it's the other thing is like you, you look really young in your picture. You also look kind of buff. It was like. You, you look like you're a football player who's just really smart. <laughs> That's, uh, well, the the buff part is because uh, six months ago I was about 210 pounds, and I said, screw that noise, and started uh, really hitting the gym like crazy. And now it's it's amazing how addicting physical fitness can be when you start feeling better and you oh, start yeah. – you know, it really makes a difference that your quality of sleep goes up and your physical stamina goes up just for everyday living. And so, yeah, I I don't know if I look quote-unquote buff, but yeah, <laughs> my wife thinks so. But, <laughs> I'm but, sure she uh, has no complaints. No complaints of me getting back down to about 185 is where I am now, but you know, I'm, I'm currently on building mode with all that. But anyway, uh, yeah, I am young though. Like I said, I'm only, you know, 33, uh, so, or 34. How old am I? I forget. I was born in 76. Do the math. Anyway. <laughs> sure, me too. I was born in 76 too. And you said that's young. So now I can, I can, I can feel young again because yeah, it is 30, young. I'm actually 34, but yeah, I just turned yeah, 34. 34. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, I always forget how old I am. I don't keep track of that crap. I'm like my dad. My dad says, you know, it's a, it's another trip around the sun. Who the hell cares? Does it really matter when you were actually born? Right. Um, uh, 
not really. It's because there's people that are older than me that are dumb as dirt, and there are people that are younger than me that are smarter than me. It really, I don't put a lot of age. I don't put a number on that. No. But, uh, but really quickly, because this is kind of relevant to what you were talking about, about building a hydroponic farm, I mean, like, how hard would it be to move that technology into space? I mean, could we build a, you know, like the huge hydroponic farm system on, say, the moon? Oh, yeah. I mean, they've got, my, they've got smaller versions of it right now up in the space station. Yeah, I was wondering about that, you know, and I just yeah. it occurred to me, like, you know, because we're gonna, if we're going to go colonize or something, we'd need to have hydroponic farming technology. Oh yeah, it's an absolute requirement. NASA's done research on it, uh, but they've never, they've never implemented it for terrestrial use. Uh, and well, actually, I don't even know if they've ever actually built something, much less, you know, much less anything for the Earth. Uh, they haven't even built test setups because NASA's budget gets cut. And some of the first things that end up going away are these side projects that are very interesting and very important, but it's at the expense of maintaining the space shuttle right? and, and doing the space station and all that other stuff. And so you end up chopping and hacking away at, at projects that, that would uh, provide those kinds of technologies. And so, I mean, absolutely, any hydroponic, any fully automated hydroponic system that we develop here on Earth uh, would would be, you know, greatly advantageous for anything that you do in a space station or on the moon or Mars or anywhere, any other solar body that you would want to go to uh, and keep people there. Uh, so, you know, that it's, it's tremendously important. The difference, though, I mean, the system that I'm creating or the system that I want to create uh, actually uses gravity as a helper in, right. in increasing the yield uh, of of the fruits and vegetables or the vegetables that you're that you're growing, uh, that would be less less efficient on any other body unless uh, I mean you get one sixth the G on the moon, but that's almost negligible, and you get one third the G on Mars, so that would be a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You might break even to where the way it would look on the Earth um, by doing the rotating system at one standard G. So it really depends on how. Uh, how the system would be built, but it is important. Right. Because you don't know what the soil nutrients are going to be like on foreign, I don't say foreign soil, but on extraterrestrial soil. Well, yeah, that is one of the things that I really, like, I was thinking to myself was like, well, you know, I mean, what, what would it be like? I mean, like, is there, a, could we plant anything in, in moon soil? Would there be any nutrients there? You know, um, but I guess it would be kind of dead because there wouldn't, you know, there's no living organisms there, you know, in the dirt. So I guess. Right. Yeah, you'd have very dead soil. And um, you could probably enrich it over time, but you'd have to compost it or something. I mean, this is all stuff that's, like, barely within my scientific knowledge. But, um, you know, and the other thing that occurred to me is, like, I had always wondered how many plants you would have to put to start producing your own oxygen rather than having to pipe it all up there, you know. Um, well, it, I, w- it, I wouldn't even use plants. I'd use grass. Really? Because people people don't realize that the anabolic rate of grass is tremendously faster than any other plant that we have. Look at how fast your yard grows and how often you have to mow it. That's very true. It's very it, true. It's very, very fast. And you can use certain grasses and mosses that just suck up CO2 like nothing doing and punch out O2 on a regular basis and they grow so fast. Now, yeah, you'd have to find ways to trim it. <laughs> you're going to be overrun <laughs> relatively quick, right. but uh, if you're going to, if I've always figured, if you're going to put anything down and, and try to create an oxygen system using the plants or whatever, you use grasses and mosses. 
I mean, is that is that still going to be the better way, or is, are we going to be looking into some form of technological way to make air? I mean, you know, out of carbon dioxide. I mean, or is it? Do you think you can make it out of water? Or oh, okay, yeah, just, yeah, I, just electrolysis, just separate water. That's why it's so important that they've recently found water on the moon. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can make with that water that's on the moon. You can make rocket fuel out of right. the water that's on the moon. You could make breathable oxygen uh, and. Uh, and you can also use it as it's in its water form for plants and, and things of that nature. So uh, it has water's the most amazing fragging molecule in the universe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, this has been a great interview, and I, it's it's like I said, I'm kind of taking a personal privilege here with some of these questions that aren't necessarily relevant to the Venus Project, but. There are things that I had always thought about, you know, being a, a fiction writer and a sci-fi enthusiast myself, you know, um, and uh, I, I guess, you know, um, we, we talked about, you know, we talked about Mars and, you know, some of the probes and stuff, and, you know, like, there was one thing I had always been curious about, I never really had an answer on it, like, I remember when Pioneer 1 left the solar system, and I was curious if we were still getting, like, do, do we still communicate with that probe, or is it just kind of floating around out there or, or will we know or is there some long time period we have to wait or do you even or is this even in, within your area of expertise are you talking about pioneer or are you talking about voyager i believe it was pioneer but i could be wrong i was well, very I young voyager one and voyager two are the farthest things out that we've ever sent and yes we do still get back uh data from them um because their power systems are actually nuclear powered and uh yeah they use radioisotope thermetic generators radioisotope thermal generators rtgs and um and so they last quite quite a long time but voyager oh man i don't remember it's one or two one of one of the voyagers i'll keep it vague so i don't say anything wrong one of the voyagers has already crossed into the helio sheath of our solar system which means it's on the frontal boundary area of our solar system as it flies through the cosmos. Mm -hmm. It also has a wake in front of it, kind of like a boat going through water. Mm -hmm. You know, the, our solar system has one, our planet has one as it flies around the sun. So anything that moves through a medium, whatever that medium is, creates a wake of some sort. Well, our solar system has one, and Voyager is getting into that. And so that's really interesting because once it breaks through that, then it is beyond all effects of our solar system. So it's going to be very interesting to see if, if one, it can transmit back through the wake and even get to us. Are the signals capable of doing that from what the technology that Voyager was originally built with? And, you know, what will it sense while it's out there? So that'll be, I mean... Keep in mind, though, space is a very, very large, vast amount of nothingness. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's possible that the thing may just go out there and there may not be nothing for, like, yeah. the rest of our lifetime. Yeah, and nothing. It, you know, that's the other thing, like, when you talk about, like, how technology advances, I mean, I imagine if we were to grab Voyager out of space, which is obviously not possible, and stick it on one of our tables nowadays and then, like, compare it to the technologies we have now, I mean, I imagine that thing's got to be a total dinosaur. You know, it's like... You know, when we say we still get data from it, I'm like, you know, do we do we have to use these ancient computers that have dust all over them to decode it because it's written in some, you know, ancient version of BASIC or something? 
it, it's written in the language, if I'm not mistaken, that they decided that was going to stay around for a while on purpose mm-hmm. um, and something that could be easy convertible. But as far as you know, technology, your cell phone is stronger than the entire Voyager unit put together. Wow. Um, so uh, actually, it's, it's the three main computers that run the International Space Station are weaker than a PlayStation. Wow. Yeah. There are 386, 386 DXs with internal mass coprocessors, math coprocessors. There's three of them. Those are the command and control computer systems on the space station. And there's six different CDCs that run different parts of the space station, but they're all 386 SXs. you got to imagine that, like, you know, back when they were put in there, they were probably thinking to themselves, you know, wow, we've got this immensely amazing computer. We're going to stick oh, yeah. in this. Oh, yeah. This yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the time, it was the best thing going, but now an iPod could run the whole damn space station. So, um so yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. You know, it's, I remember because a friend of mine, you know, he's in the Max, and he pointed out that I guess nuclear submarines are run by like, uh, I forgot which type of Macintosh it was, but it was like the biggest Macintosh a while ago, you know, and it's it's not even that like high tech, but it was you know, just that like a personal computer could help, it could run everything that was in a nuclear submarine a while ago, and you mm-hmm. know, and and that's the reason that that's relevant, I think, is that I don't. When, when people look at these things, because, like, when I was arguing with my brother about it, you know, he was talking about a lot of things, like, you know, how much, you know, like, what a massive undertaking it would be to, to, to do a lot of this stuff. And then, you know, it's the, the state of technology is always ever, you know, improving at an increasing rate. And it's it, these things that, you know, we don't, we would think were so unrealistic are always proven to be, you know, possible later on. You know, not always, maybe not always exactly the way we thought about it, but, like, you know, we go back to Star Trek. You know, Gene Roddenberry was telling people we were going to have these, you know, handheld communicators, and everybody told him he was nuts. You know, yeah. and now you can't, you know, swing a stick without hitting somebody with a cell phone. Mm-hmm. You, know? <laughs> um, you know, and it's they, they're everywhere. You know, and yeah. And look at the look at the razor, because that's actually what I have is a razor. I need to get a new phone, but you know, it's the flip phone. I mean, doot, doot, doot. Yep. Uhura, come and beam up. I mean, Jesus <laughs> Christ, what what is that? It's a freaking. Star Trekian flip communicator for crying out loud. Now, could you use something of that size though to contact, like you know, something in orbit? Um, yeah, you could bounce relay to orbit. Yeah, you could do that. If, oh, you if bounce the, relay. Okay. Yeah, I was yeah, just like, but the notion of like I'm going to call the Enterprise with something the size of a cell phone is not necessarily there yet. Um, well, only because anything that's orbit right now flies by too fast. You've got to remember that. Um, when we talk on our cell phones, it bounces up to a geostationary satellite, which is fixed over one spot above you. Mm-hmm. And anything that's in a lower orbit, uh, you know, is is going by. You got you got to remember that the, the space station orbits the Earth several times a day, um, right. many many times. And so, it's uh, by the time you see it, it's it's gone. It's on the other side of the planet. Right. And so it, it, it orbits once every 90 minutes. Every hour and a half, it goes around the whole planet. And so how is your cell phone supposed to keep up with that? It's moving too fast. Right. And so that's, that's just a normal mechanics issue. Now, you put that same object, the quote-unquote enterprise or whatever, up in geosat, in, ge- in, ge- in geostationary orbit. Well, now it is directly above you, and that's how we operate our cell phones is it bounces up. It hits the relay, it hits the satellite, the satellite bounces it down to another satellite, 
down the way or and then shoots it down to France to a, a pickup center in France. And that's how you talk to France. It just happens to be going to speed of light, which is pretty darn quick. And so it happens relatively almost instantaneously, at least to the human perception. Right. And so and so that's how that works. So you the only way you'd be able to talk to a spacecraft is if it was able to maintain a stationary orbit above you, either like I said, by manipulating gravity and hovering just because it's lower, even if it's lower, or actually maintaining a straight up geostationary orbit. Now, I'm going to ask you this question, and if um, if you don't if you don't want to answer it, that's fine. But I um, I'm curious uh, in the position that you're in, what what is your opinion on um, unidentified flying objects? Wow, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's what I said I didn't know if I wanted to ask you, but well, I, no, I I, myself. I do believe in them, and and you know people say, well, God, you don't believe in God because I'm an atheist. They go, you don't believe in God, but you believe in in uh, aliens or UFOs or whatever the case may be. And I go, well, yes. And the reason why is because if you look at ancient Egyptian writings on walls or if you go as far back as caveman drawings on walls, invariably there's always these little saucer shapes in the sky or something in the sky hovering. And you know, what the hell were they see- seeing? Were they all smoking from the same pipe? I don't think so. Right. And so how could cultures that are completely separated around the planet all depict the same kinds of shapes in the sky? And and people will say, well, that's asteroids or whatever. I go, yeah, but asteroids or anything coming in is more, co- more looks like a comet. It's got a flaming top and it's got the tail. And so that's that's different. Then when you see these drawings that have these definitive shapes floating, and they're not streaking, they're not, they don't look like they're moving, they're just floating. And so, however, comma, everything that's ever written about God is still out of the human mind. There's no visual representation, no real connection. Whereas everything that was written based on UFOs or whatever anybody saw in the sky is based off of something they actually saw in the sky. Right. So even, even I've, I mean, I've seen that. They're, they're credible people who've seen them. It's just a question of what they are. I mean, like, I don't believe Jimmy Carter made that up, and I don't think Jimmy Carter's crazy. I don't think Congressman Dennis Kucinich is crazy. I believe Ronald Reagan said he saw one. You know, um, I mean, these are public figures. It just so happened that you always hear that politicians saw them because they try to, you know, say a politician's a quack if he's seen a mm-hmm. UFO. And I remember, you know, it's like a, I was watching TV once in Michigan, and I've, I've confirmed this with a few other people who saw the same thing. And it's always like you always get these weird little news stories that you might not get otherwise. If you're listening to television, like back in the day, you know, when like Sunday television was something nobody really watched, so you'd be watching like some old movie from the 70s or something. Right. And, you know, like every now and then a news break would come on. Well. This this is a, you know, a true story. You know, a news break comes on, and they've got a film crew filming a UFO, and there's a state trooper there, you know, verifying, yeah, this is real. I'm looking right at it, you know. And it, the reason that it intrigued me so much is I was like, wait a minute, you know, this is that stuff you see on Mexican television all the time, and that's why <laughs> I don't even I don't even it's not a question of believing in them as far as I'm concerned. It's a question of what is it. But you know, it's like. Because if you watch Mexican television, it's to the point now they don't even bother to report it because it's so common to see that stuff floating over Mexico, sometimes mm-hmm. even in broad daylight, that it's like, yeah, there's something up there. We don't know what it is. 
you know, and it's it's always interesting to me when you when you when you think about it because like you know they of course said they were going to follow up on that story and they never did. The, the right. story just vanished. Oh you no, know, well, I remember. They never do. Yeah, I remember another really weird story that happened. It's only somewhat related, but it has to do with the way the news is. Like it, because another time you can get really weird news breaks in the old days was really late at night. And I was up till like three in the morning, about the same time you were watching the same kind of old movies from the seventies, you know. Mm-hmm. And like they do this news break about this guy that is a truck driver who had this virus that was eating his flesh, and like they were reporting on it, you know. And it, like it literally like it devoured most of the flesh on his thighs, and I guess was working its way up his buttocks by the time he got into the hospital. And they reported on it, never heard another word about it. You know, hmm. stuff like that that just, like, comes in and out of your radar. And, you know, it's like – so beyond any of the crazy conspiracy theory stuff, I've seen enough stuff on the Mexican television that it's like, okay, yeah, there's something going on. And that's why when you talk about anti-gravity technology, because, you know, I, you know, I was an, a bit of an Air Force brat. I lived with my brother for a long time when he, – because he's, he's a half-brother. He's considerably older than me. And I lived, you know, with a long time on Wright-Patterson. You know, and, uh, you know, we talked about that, you know, during that time period, and it just, it's like, you know, how would you do the things that some of these things are doing? Well, you know, in that particular instance, that craft, you know, it was the same kind of like silverish disc thing that's floating there. You know, it has kind of a weird effect going on in the air around it that reminds me of heat, and then it just zips off, you know, at angles that aren't even supposed to be possible. And I'm like, it's got to be anti-gravity, because this thing doesn't seem to be interacting with, you know, the air in the normal way, you know, and, and you know, and when you said that, I was like, I was curious, you know, so you said you have ideas for anti-gravity, um, you know, and I, that's, that's another thing that came up once is uh, my other brother was watching one of these future technology shows. And he said, and mind you, I've never seen this, so I can't confirm it, but my brother's not the kind of guy to make up wild stories. He's too practical minded. He said that he know he saw a guy that created a device that could lift cinder blocks it was about the size of a lawnmower engine, I think it was, mm-hmm. and it had like all these like gyro-like things spinning around it in all different directions. And once again, I normally would just say, "Oh, that's crap. You're making that up." But my brother is a really down-to-earth, quiet kind of guy. He doesn't just mm-hmm. sit around and comes up with flights of fancy. And then, you know, I've expected to see that technology again. Never saw it. Just gone. You know, and that's why it makes me wonder. I'm like, you know. Are these you know is, is is this stuff getting bought out you know or are these people getting you know taken out you know because there's always weird conspiracy theories about that stuff and I don't want right. to speculate about it too much but the point is though it's like when you say anti gravity I mean how far off are we from that and you know and I don't want to ask you for everything on your approach because I don't want somebody to steal your idea and right. patent it but you know I mean how I mean what are the things that we have to tackle? Well, I look at it. As far as do I think people have come up with interesting stuff and then having it somehow mysteriously disappear, oh yeah, I think that does happen. Um, I really do believe that the powers that be don't want some things out. Uh, Now, whether or not we have anti-gravity capabilities now or not, I have no idea. Um, and, and, And people say, well, anything they're seeing flying in the sky is probably a military craft or something. I said, well, that might work today, but what the hell were the Egyptians drawing, and what were the Aztecs drawing, and what were all these cave people drawing back then? Because we sure as hell didn't have the United States Air Force screwing around in the sky back then. So right. where do, what is that? Can, you can't rationalize or explain that one. So how, do you, how can you just dismiss all the history? And, um, and that usually makes them 
be quiet for a moment. Well, and yeah, so, I mean, just I mean, even the stuff that we found that's in museums. I mean, once again, you know, sticking strictly by the facts here, you know. Yeah, strictly um, by the it, facts. I mean, you've got there, drawings that show it. You have artifacts that show it. You've got uh, things some with magnetic... Some of the technologies that don't belong are like the working gliders, you know, that mm-hmm. you found in the pyramids, the batteries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. There's things that have been found that are just like, A, how the hell would they have even thought of this in the first place, given what we thought was their level of technology at the time. Right. Uh, and and things of that nature. And so, um, you know, I can go off on my kooky side a little bit just because it's fun. I mean, look, you can't be serious and narrow, you know, follow the straight and narrow all the time. And so uh, there's a guy by the name of Nassim Haramin, Mm -hmm. and uh, he has something called the Resonance Project. I actually think the Resonance Project and the Venus Project should get together because uh, Nassim Haramin is a self-educated astrophysicist and he's actually had a couple of papers published, physics papers published, and he's won awards and recognition for them because the man is completely looking at the universe in a different way and making the math add up a hell of a lot better than what the current scientists are doing now. Um, you know, I think I might know who you're talking about, and I had a video presentation of his, and I lost it. And I, 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 that's if it's the same guy. There's this guy who got up there. He was a foreigner. He had long brown uh-huh. hair, purple shirt. Was, I think so. Yeah. And if, if you know who this guy is, I really wanted to finish watching it because at first it was like, okay, so what is this? Is this another zero point energy weirdo or something like that? Nope. And then he, he started asking some questions. And I was like, wait a minute, he's got a real point. Like, he, he made this thing about, like, you know, because, of course, I guess he was kind of outside of the, the normal physicist group. And he said mm-hmm. that they, of course, didn't really like him very much. And right. he starts drawing on a table, and he's like, so, we, you know, we have this example of this man blowing into a balloon. And yep. this is how the Big Bang happens. This is how expansion happens. You know, he's like, and then they're all like, yeah, okay, so what? You know, it's a rudimentary thing. We put that in all of our textbooks. And then he's like... So where did the man come from? Who's that guy? Yeah, yeah. exactly. That is okay. absolutely his. I'm so his. glad I finally found somebody who could give me the rest of that. Because I read that, yeah. I'm like, and everything in my head that was a science geek in school just exploded. And I went. It's on Google Video. Google it's Video. Totally just, right. Yeah, just Google Video Nassim Haramin. It's N A S S I M H A R A M E I N. It's an eight-hour presentation that he did in Ashland. I think it was Ashland, Oregon, at one of their. Uh, facilities there. No, was, and, I'm, I'm sorry, can you spell the last name again? Sure, Haramin. H-A-R-A-M-E-I-N. Okay, got it. Okay, cool. And if you just Google video that, you'll find the two four-hour segments uh, mm-hmm. that were uploaded up there. And yeah, it's... Um, yeah, exactly. Because he, he starts off talking about how he never got along well in school because he always used to ask questions uh, and he goes, he goes, I started off on the wrong foot from day one in geometry when they said, here's a dot, it doesn't exist. That's dimension one. And here's a line, and that doesn't exist. Right, yep, I remember that two. too. Yeah, yep. and now you take these, these lines and, and put them together like this, and you have a plane, and that's, that's 2D, and that, and that doesn't exist either. But now you take all these and make a cube, and that's 3D, and that exists. And he's like, how do you go from a dot that doesn't exist to a line that doesn't exist to a plane that doesn't exist to suddenly construct a 3D system right. that exists? Right. <laughs> so that the second he starts off like that, and you're right, his he's uh his his uh, dad was from Iran, and so he has an Iranian accent somewhat, and uh, his mom 
I forgot his mom was Italian, I think. So uh, he must have had an interesting childhood growing up. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, forget yeah. that the the Arabs were actually some of the best scientists back in the day. Oh yeah, yeah. Before they got psychotic, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yep. But uh, but yeah. So he's uh, you start looking at. I I like him for two reasons. One, his his mysticism side, his UFO theory and stuff like that is entertaining and fun and some it makes you think. And but his physics side, his math and his actual science, which I have read his papers, is solid. And so here's yeah, the that's main... what I was thinking. I was like, you know, it, I couldn't refute him at that point because that is an unanswered question in physics. Where does that guy come from? Yeah, and exactly. It's, just, it's like, how the hell did this slip my mind all this time? I couldn't believe it. And it was like, you know, you're right. I had thought about that. It was like, you know, we need to get this guy over to the Venus Project and see if, you know, he could talk to Jacques and see what comes out of that. You know, but yeah, please continue with what you're saying. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. So it was just, uh, it's it's amazing, you know. Finding somebody like that, so I, I now follow the Resonance Project and see what they do. But and uh, and so he's, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the the unifi- grand unification theory. Uh, no, please share. Okay. Uh, well, basically, what that is is you've got general relativity and special relativity, right? You've got uh, things that happen on the on the on the quantum level, like quarks and atoms and, and electrons and how things behave on a quantum level do not add up on the macro level when it comes to galaxies and how things behave on the macro level. There's a disconnect mathematically between how the two behave. You can't predict them using the same set of circumstances. And so there's a disconnect. So they're trying to figure out how do you unify the micro or the quantum and the macro, and that's the grand unification theory. And Nassim Haramin has figured it out. And that's what he's, that's what he's researching on. He's, he lives in Hawaii with a team of other people, research people that work with him. And he's got this theory, or he's theoretically figured out how and why it is the way it is and how to solve it. And he's got papers and stuff on it. And so far, they're, they're coming out clean, clean, clean. Because peer review is one of the hardest things to go through as a scientist. Because you write this paper, and then you throw it out there, and it just gets destroyed or right. by hundreds of other physicists, and they nitpick it to death. And so far, he's come out still smelling like a rose. Nobody has really stood up and said, this guy's a complete funky idiot. They've come out and said, holy crap, we never thought about it that way. <laughs> but, you know, I'd be interested to hear what Stephen Hawking thinks about it. I don't know if anybody's ever shown it to him. Um, uh, I don't know. It's uh, I think Hawking would, would kind of like the way that Nassim is going because, according to Nassim, everything is a black hole. It's not just black holes or giant things in space, but everything is a black hole. There's everything that has mass. The center area is a black hole of some variety. There's a black hole at the center of our planet that holds it together. There's black hole in the center of the sun that holds it together. There's black holes in the center of atoms that holds them together. And it's all gravitationally bound, but it's at different levels, different states. And so that's where he gets the the holographic fractal universe and uh, he goes all the way into how religion, I mean, where religions tie into the science and the technology. And that's when he gets into his alien stuff, which is just fascinating. When you listen to the way he talks, it, he's right. hilarious. And not only is he funny, but it gets you thinking. Because um, he came up with the 64 tetrahedron grid, 
which he says is the, the fundamental structure of the universe. And if we can figure out to make, to tap that, to use that shape in some way mechanically, that's how you would get the anti-gravity kind of setup. That would be the gravitational manipulator, would be the 64 tetrahedron device, whatever we make that out of. I bet that it's something that has to be made out of crystals that are grown in space because only crystals grown in space are perfect crystals because they don't have gravitational influence. Right, right. And, they, and they've already grown perfect crystals on the space station. And so you would use those perfect crystals to make this device and give it an energy somehow. And, and I don't know how all that would work. That's why I'd love to talk to the man. They're like, your theories are great. How would you build a device? But right. he, ta- he talks about uh, 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 Moses and um, – uh, was it Moses, I think? Crap. I don't know any of that history very well. I'm not a religious person. But um, the one who left Egypt with all the slaves. That's and Moses. To, okay, yeah. 40 days, 40 nights, walking through the desert and all that mumbo-jumbo or something like that, or however long he was. For 40 years, roaming the desert or something like that. And uh, and so 40 days and 40 nights was the flood. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, wander, uh, Moses going through the desert with all the Jews and stuff. and uh, And so... He he draws the story and says, actually, what enabled the Egyptians to build the pyramids and everything was they had this device, and that is what was in the Ark of the Covenant. He's like, the Ark of the Covenant had nothing to do with God. It had to do with this alien device that actually was a gravity manipulation device. And you start thinking, wow, that's that's kind of a funny story. You know, like, <laughs> you're cracking me up, Dave. It is kind of a funny story, and then you start thinking about it. I mean, Stargate SG-1, you know, as fiction, was starting to do that to a lot of my friends. You know, like, <laughs> especially all the aliens being different kinds of gods and stuff like that, you know. Yeah. Yep. And it, it's it really uh, – my grandfather, um, I would call him my step-grandfather, had me read Chariots of the Gods. And when you start to think about it, you know, if, you know, so we have these mythological things, you know, and the first thing that's mentioned in Chariots of the Gods is uh, this part of Ezekiel where some, you know, a pair of angels comes down, but they don't just, you know, they don't fly on their wings or something. They're in this cloud with like electricity coming out of it. And, you know, he goes through all the descriptions and he's just taking it out of the scripture and it all sounds like, you know, he's like, I never thought about it when I read Ezekiel because I used to be Christian. And then I went, after reading this book, I'm like, wow, you know, it, that does kind of sound like a spaceship. It certainly sounds more like a spaceship than it does, you know, sounding like, you know, a couple of angels flying down on their wings. You know, if that's right. what the angels were, why didn't they just fly down, you know? Um, you know, and it's it really puts things into perspective. You know, it, it, when you think about it, it's, you know, do you want proof of aliens? It's not as though they haven't been recorded. You know, and I think that... Um, I think one of the other things about it, and it's like, you know, Jock talks about this too, is that, you know, he, he doesn't, he doesn't necessarily get into that. He just doesn't feel that, you know, any, anybody, any group of, of species that is that evolved probably doesn't want to talk to us. I agree. Of, you know, just the fact we're blowing ourselves up and all that, you know, um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, cause we've basically, you know, when we, when it talks about, you know, when we talk about, I guess, should bring things a little bit back to the, the Venus project subject here. Um, is that, you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, have you spoken to any of your colleagues about this, you know, fellow engineers about the Venus Project, you know, um, and how have you, what kind of reception are you getting? A lot of the people that I work with are older, and um, so I don't have a lot of young people to talk to. That I do believe there's an age discrepancy there, but of the people that I've talked to, they're very interested 
but they don't know how to bring it about. And we, and, you know, we have that discussion all the time, the transition. How do you make it happen? How do you make it happen? That, that's a conversation that we go to with to we're blue in the face. Um, so, like, the guy that sits next to me, I've, I've gone through it, and he's a Wall Street Journal reading, Forbes magazine subscription kind of guy. But then I started talking to him about economic breakdown and how everything goes and everything, and he's like, damn, I never thought about that before. And I was like, uh-huh. So I was basically breaking down awakening to him in, mm-hmm. before I had actually finished the video. And so, um, you know, he was – so he's already thinking about it in, in a positive way. Now, do I think he's going to join the movement? No. Um, I think there's just – I find it – I find the graybeards, what I call to be the graybeards, or not even graybeards, anybody who's basically over the age of 40, I really don't know – or 50 the ones are, who are weaned during that Cold War era, you know, yeah. with all that anti-communist propaganda where yeah. you can't even say the word share to them without being called a czar. You know? Right. It's, it's, it's funny how the propaganda worked. It's like they're scared of anybody who says that we should share anything. Right, and, and, and which is funny because we ahead. teach our kids to share when they're young, but all of a sudden that goes away when we're older. I never understood the disconnect there between what we teach our kids to be, share and be nice and all those things. And then when you get older, no, don't share. That's communism or that's this or that's that. And, right. Uh, you know, and it's funny, though, is that you know, I think uh, I had this gentleman, Patty Shannon, who did Capitalism and Other Kids Stuff. If you haven't watched it, you probably should. It's a very direct – I mean, it is a, it, the guy is a socialist, but um, he doesn't really get into socialism in the film. He just mostly talks about capitalism and how they teach you to, you know, how cooperation is probably a better solution, which is why we actually use capitalism and other kid stuff in the Michigan chapter to help people understand why we don't like capitalism. But um, he points out that it seems like, you know, it's interesting that that the, the the capitalist attitude turns us against one another, which is to the benefit of the elite because that way – we're always thinking about fighting each other in one way or another, and we're not thinking about the fact that there's this one group of small, you know, small group of people that are running everything. Oh, so yeah. If you keep the chickens busy pecking against themselves, you don't have to worry about them. So Absolutely. basically, you know, it's it, like, you know, it is. It is like that. You, you can't – and it, the reason they, they, they jump on the, well, it's communism thing. You, you damn commie just because we say the word share. We, when you look at our implementation, it really actually doesn't have that much in common with communism, but it's as if the communists own the trademark of the term share. Right, <laughs> you know, right. Don't talk about sharing or you must be a communist. You couldn't possibly be you know, something else because you're talking about sharing. Unless you're selfish, you're a communist. And that reminds me, oddly enough, of the same thing as you get out of Christians. Well, if you're not a Christian, then you're a devil worshiper. You may not know you're a devil worshiper, <laughs> but you're, right. a, you're a devil worshiper because everything else is the devil. Even Buddha, you know, Buddha. <laughs> yeah, He's Buddha. got so many satanic characteristics. But yeah, you know, I know. He's such a vile, evil person. <laughs> but, he, but he's not Jesus, so he yes. must be evil. You know, so... It's, that, it's a whole mentality. If you're not with me, you're against me. It's almost like the damn Sith Lords in mm. Star Wars. I mean, he's a yeah. Star Wars geek, you know? If you're not with us, you're against just absolutes. You know, and it's it's like, well, first of all, the universe is not an absolute. There are variations up and down the spectrum. Um, and so even that alone is an unnatural thought process. Right. Um, and so I, it, 
to get over the communism thing, anytime anybody brings that up, I just draw attention to the simple basic fact. It's communism and any other ism of the past had people serving people. Right. Our system is robots serving people, and robots don't care who you are, where you came from, or whether or not you're lazy or not. They don't care. It's a machine. It just does what it's programmed to do till the end of time and doesn't give two cents about who you are. That's Absolutely. the fundamental difference. And, you know, and at, at the end of the day, though, I mean, it, that's one of the reasons why your presentation was so important is that as I keep telling people, okay, well, we can argue till the cows come home about whether or not you think capitalism works. But even if it did, and even if, you know, it worked out great for everybody, the planet can't put up with it much longer. Oh, yeah, so, even if you look at, like, the story of stuff. I mean, that right. right there shows you that the planet can't handle this linear flow. We just, our system doesn't allow for a linear flow. Because it's only got so much stuff on it. And we're we're expending at a rate that, as you pointed out, we'll have a collapse before we ever get into space and start taking other people's stuff. You right. know, I guess it'll be like, you know, the story of stuff will turn into, like, you know, it will, you know, it will be other planets. <laughs> it'll be like, you know, we have six, you know, in order to continue our, you know, our, our current consumption, we would need 12 planets, and we only have six, um, you know. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. They put that, you know, but but no, it's it, and the funny thing is about the story of stuff. We were talking about education earlier. Um, it was getting played in some schools, and this Nimrod um, somehow managed to get himself on CNN because he's dressed like a good neocon with his suit mm -hmm. and his neocon haircut. You know, <laughs> I was joking around with people about this yesterday, but he just looked like somebody who'd work in the Bush administration, and he made his own YouTube video called "The Critique of the Story of Stuff," and mm -hmm. he gets her on maybe two items. And then the rest of it is just him making fun of her and attacking her and calling her a you know a communist and all this. And he is just angry that this is being allowed to be played to kids. All this communist propaganda, you know, you know, you're telling people that their Legos would destroy the world and you know all that stuff. And that's terrible. You told this kid that their Legos hurt the planet, and I'm like, well, you know what? The Legos may not be blowing anything up, but you're still producing these plastic toys that are never going away. <laughs> They're mm -hmm. going to be here forever. You know, it's like one of the most telling points of that one documentary about the world after man was this documentary, well, let's just pluck humankind off earth, you know, and watch what happens to the earth. And as they play it out, buildings, giant concrete structures are coming down because the earth is metabolizing them. And throughout mm -hmm. the whole presentation, they keep coming back to this cell phone that's sitting on the side of a river. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a thousand years have passed. And this stupid cell phone is still sitting there in mostly pristine condition, you know, the whole through the whole presentation. You know yep. That was on Discovery Channel, wasn't it? I believe it was. You know, and it, it was really creepy, but at the same time it really made me think about it. You know, there's so many cell phones that are just gonna be here forever. You know, by the time we've colonized other planets, there's still gonna be cell phones <laughs> sitting around somewhere. You know, I did have another PhD on, uh, you know, his name is uh, Mitchell Joachim, and he mm -hmm. talked about how he hopes that what he thinks is going to happen is that he thinks eventually we'll get the message and we're going to have to get rid of plastic. But he says what's going to end up happening then is that they're going to have to set up, you know, excavation and mining, you know, to mine plastic because it won't be legal to manufacture it anymore. <laughs> so we're going to have to go through and dig up all this plastic, you know, that we buried because it's going to be the only plastic we're allowed to have. You know, then well, you're I, people selling plastic stock. Well, I think if um, you can do plastics and stuff like that, I think those are the kind of processes that you would do off Earth, like put your 
put your manufacturing facilities on the moon because you can't pollute space. You can shoot into the atmosphere whatever you want. Anybody who thinks they can pollute space can go tie themselves to the sun in protest. Um, <laughs> but uh, you would do that, and you would get the, the raw materials from the asteroids. People don't realize how mineral rich our asteroid belt is. We're talking thousands and thousands of years of mineral of materials out there. We just have to go get it. Um, and and it, it's a it's a simple fact that I throw out to people to make them think for a second that one decent sized asteroid in the asteroid belt, and there's plenty of them. This is just one, has more iron ore on it than everything humanity has ever mined from the Earth ever. Yeah, that's that's an that's really amazing. And when you think about it, we could probably get to it a lot easier. I mean, we'd have to get into space, but we wouldn't have to be digging through layer and layer after layer of topsoil that we need to survive. You could so. stop mining. You could stop mining the Earth altogether and get if we had the proper kind of space program that we should that wasn't hamstrung by the monetary system, but was let's say the Venus version, the Venus right. Project version of space exploration, in Less than 10 years, we could be grabbing, bringing in, and harvesting asteroids and not have to touch a single thing on this planet ever again. Right. You want to talk about returning it to Eden. That would be you know, filling in all the landfills or at least leveling them out so that they're kind of back to kind of a quasi-normal-looking state. Plant a boatload of trees and reforest that whole area, and every mineral that you really need to get all the metals and all that, you just go to the asteroids. Right. And there's thousands of asteroids in the asteroid belt. And Half a planet, the, basically. All the pollution that goes into mining would be, would be gone, because yep. you know, there would be none, because it's happening in space. You know, right, and, uh, and any manufacturing that you would want to do, you can do it through orbiting facilities, or you could, you could do it through, uh, through on the moon or something like that, so that, you know, that also is not polluting. The only... The only fun part is getting stuff back down to Earth. That's a lot of traffic, and so you do run the risk, and that's something. That's where I think the gravity drives would come in. If you have too many things reentering the atmosphere, you're going to heat it up. Right. And so you run into a thermal barrier limit with the atmosphere. If you think global warming is bad, just think of what if you overheat the atmosphere. Right. So, um, and but I actually don't necessarily believe in global warming as what it's hyped up to be. <laughs> no, well, we have a lot of arguments about that in the zeitgeist movement, and I usually try to tell people not to let them let it let it polarize them too much. Because what I think is going on with the global warming thing is that there's just too much money to be made on both sides of that issue, on both mm. sides. You know that it's like you know, so for example, I watched uh, Climate Gate, and I opened a, you know op- had an open mind about it, and then I was like, wow, you know, maybe these guys have something to say. You know, maybe this is legit, and then I. Then I watch something where they talk about some of the people in Climate Gate, and like, oh, so that guy that was convincing me, well, he works for oil companies. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, of course he doesn't want there to be a, you know, a global carbon tax, because oil companies would hate that. Yeah. You know? yeah. so, and then, but of course, then the, the politicians who are supporting the idea would also stand to make boatloads of money and revenues yeah. and stuff like so that. That's why the, I said it's just it's oh. just like anything else. You know, you put money in anything and it turns to crap. And the same thing is true of science. You know, because like I said, it's like you know a lot of people mistrust scientists, and I'm like, well, no, you don't need to mistrust scientists. You need to understand the the monetary system has something to do with that. You know, because these scientists have to compete for grants to even live. 
you know, yeah. just been do this stuff. They, they're mm-hmm. they're fighting each other for that reason. I mean, it's like you got to think that's probably why Tesla and Edison hated each other. You know, it's there's so much competition when there really wouldn't be. You know, in in a society free of money, we wouldn't be dealing with that kind of baggage. Right, and, and, and Tesla is the ultimate example of how the scientist wants to do the the awesomest, coolest thing for humanity, and the financier, J.P. Morgan, mm-hmm. is the schmuck that cuts off his funding when he finds out he can't make a profit on it. Right. It's, not the, it's not the scientists that are the problem. It's the people that financially back them don't care. Don't care about the okay, They asked Jack what he thought about Tesla, and he said that Tesla had made some kind of tower or something that was going to generate electricity – and they dynamited thing. it because they were like, no, well, they screw didn't. that. <laughs> no, actually, unfortunately, he's wrong. <laughs> oh, okay. It, the tower's called Wardenclyffe, mm-hmm. and it still exists, and a bunch of Tesla fans are trying to get money to buy it and turn it into an historical landmark. Oh, okay. But it, well, then, but it so is, then what so, actually happened there? Uh, J.P. Morgan realized that uh, Tesla was trying to provide wireless electricity. Right. Not wireless communication, but wireless electricity, so that basically houses in the area would put up an antenna and grab it right. and have this free electricity coming off of this. What it did is the Wardenclyffe Tower is supposed to tap into the ionosphere, mm-hmm. which is highly energetic. So if you can route the energy from the ionosphere, because you've got solar particles coming off the sun, they hit our atmosphere and electrocharge it, and then that's where you get the aurora borealis, all that stuff. And the, the northern lights, where it kind of dips back in into the earth at the and its uh, magnetic center. Well, mm-hmm. if you can tap into that and reroute it back down to the ground, you'd have the ultimate in free energy base. Not free energy; it's coming from the sun, and even the sun has an expiration date. But as far as a human lifespan is concerned, it's free energy. <laughs> well, yeah, and by the time the sun runs out of energy, we're going to need to get the hell out of here anyway, if we're even still around. Yeah, because it's, it's going to expand. The sun's going to expand and suck us up long before it actually even finishes. So, yeah, this planet's going to be toast in two billion years anyway. So, basically, you have about a billion years of free energy. That I consider that free anyway. But J.P. Morgan found out what Tesla was trying to do his research on and shut off his funding. Right. He's like, well, I don't want that because I'm not going to be able to build people for it. You're going to empower the whole planet, and you're going to get rid of this this need, you know, mm-hmm. it's funny how the, the capitalist system, they always like, all these innovations came from capitalism. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, you know what? For every innovation that you came up with because you wanted to make a profit, I can guarantee you we can find stories for 10 things that would not have been profitable, would have been good for mankind, that capitalism squelched. And yeah, that's just I, a perfect example. Yeah, a 1 to 10. It probably is a good 1 to 10 shot for every one thing that people tout as capitalist success. I can find 10 that were capitalist destroyed. Right, and it's 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 really terrifying. I mean, I just you know, you know, I guess one of the other things we don't, we don't have a lot of time left before blog talk will cut me off. But it's been great having you on, and um, I hope that I can have you on as a panelist and a consultant in the future for sure. I mean, everybody in the chat room is very much enjoying the show. Um, you know, I would like to you know ask you, did you have you ever worked with any foreign people? Like, I mean, because like Russia had a communist system and they had a space program, but I guess they were kind of a poor country. And what was it like for them? Would it have been different for them in a communist country to be part of a space program over there? I don't know. Um, they, their space program was very much military derivative. So they were, yeah, they were communists, but the way they ran communism then was very much military-industrial complex. And so for them, their space program was military. Um, 
when we did it, our space program was civilian to make ourselves look better. And right. so, you know, it's still kind of funded the same way, but just different terminologies and methodologies behind it. But, you know, the Russians did almost everything first except for going to the moon. So, you know, their system worked. Now, granted, a lot of people were sucking wind. The general population was. We were able to pull it off by, well, blowing up our debt a little bit, but also, you know, not at the expense of the average citizen. And so that's where the differences would be. Um, I guess if you're in the system and you're in that astronaut corps, you're part of the space program, you were sitting pretty good. But if you weren't, that probably sucked to be you. Yeah, that's one of the flaws that happened in the in that that particular version of the socialist program. And I, I usually tell people about that is that you know they don't really understand that Russia was not really communist. It was just a, another excuse to be fascist. And it's they tried, they gave lip service to it, but the the nomenclature, whatever it is, the the elite of the Russian society were still always doing better than everybody else. And it's they had their own neoconservatives. They just, you know, basically, you know, their own neocon group of people who were in charge of everything and kept getting revolved into the, you know, into the, the, the leadership, and they always lived better than everybody else. And that's not what real socialism is supposed to be either. Um, mm-hmm. I had a president, presidential candidate from the Socialist Party on my show several times during the last presidential campaign, and uh, his name was Brian Moore, and he told me, he was like, well, no, we would nationalize everything, but what's different between actual socialist is, you know, socialism and what has been practiced is that the, the dictatorship of the Prolaria, which I'm probably mispronouncing, never actually took place in communist You mean Russia. the proletariat? The proletariat, yeah. Okay. That it never took place. The, the, the working class never owned the, the country like they were supposed to. Right, um, and of course they're not because it's still people running people. It's like right. when, you have, when you have greedy people still in the mix, it screws everything up which is what I love about the Venus Project. It takes people out of the mix and puts technology in there. Technology doesn't have the same baggage. Right. And so and it, it, and can't, it can't be racist or bigoted or, or twisted or manipulated. It's a machine. It doesn't care. So that's the true difference between the two, which is why when I said you know, in Awakening, we live in a time where that has never been the case up until now. We've always had to rely on people. Now we don't. And that's what the fundamental difference is, which is why the Venus Project can work. Well, that's another, you know, like when you, when I was pointing out that actually earlier was that it comes down to the fact that whether or not, like we said earlier, whether or not there's a silly utopian notion that capitalism is ever going to make even most people do well, um, you know, is, is even if we could just believe everything they said, it's not going to matter because of the things that was brought up in story of stuff, as we pointed out earlier, I'm just kind of recapping here, you know, was that the world can't handle it. I mean, the, the planet will still be here, but it's not going to be livable. You know, we can't continue to live here if we're going to continue to do the things that we're doing. And right. the, w- economic collapses aside, because they keep thinking that they can just keep inflating the, the debt, you know, balloon. And that's actually the comment that came to mind when you were explaining that we, you know, expanded our debt. It was like, oh, okay. So the Russians, well, they, they just took food out of the mouths of the average citizen. We, on the other hand, just pretended we had more money than we did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we, we were both full of crap. You know, and that's something I actually thought about that actually was like, you know, the fact that the money system is, is BS actually is one of the biggest things when you think about it that motivates is because of the fact that our money is already BS. Our, our money is already a figment of our imagination. We're already accepting useless pieces of paper and working for it, you know, as our motivation under the understanding that we will be able to take care of ourselves with it, mm-hmm. you know, and that's why I tell people like, what if we ran like, you know, like in capitalism, a love story, uh, my Michael Moore, 
he went to that one business that was ran basically entirely by the employees, the management, everybody there made the same salary. Everything was absolutely transparent. You couldn't do something like give the executives of that company a raise because everybody would look at you going, what do you mean you're going to get a raise? I don't, you know, you're pushing papers, man. I'm over here operating a drill press. Why do you,